Um, so we, we, we have a we have a written Torah that was given to us by God through the word of Hashem. It's funny because um, I have a friend of mine who's doing a course in um, in Jewish studies versus American uh, uh, Jewish law versus American law in U of H. And uh, he's an attorney, a very prominent attorney here in Houston. And he, call, he, he told me about it, th- that he was doing this. I said, if you need any help, call me 24 hours a day. I'll be there to help you. So um, he calls me one night, 11.30 at night. And those of you who know me know that I'm, I'm not sleeping, unfortunately, at 11.30 at night. That's, like, that's my morning, okay? That's when I'm that's at my peak, uh, uh, peak, uh, uh, my peak hours, yeah, peak efficiency. So I, um, so he calls me 11.30. He says, Rabbi, you remember you told me that at any time I can call you before the course. He says, I'm actually starting the course tomorrow. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about. He says, I have no idea. He says, because I, I, I sat with a bunch of people. I interviewed a bunch of people. And I wrote all my notes. And now I'm putting them all together. And I see that there's no agreement on anything. So I said, sit tight. I'll be by you. I'll be at your house in 10 minutes. So I drive to his house in Meyerland. And um, at the time, he lived in Maryland. But uh, so I, I drove to his house. I come there, and I see him under a, a, a whole bunch of papers. And he says, I, I don't know what to do. I sat with, you know, several rabbis in our community, right? And without mentioning names or congregations. And each one gave me a different name. I asked, he says, I, I asked them, who wrote the Torah? Very simple. Who wrote it? And everyone gave him a different answer. He says, I don't know what to make of it. He says, I interviewed each one separately. And I didn't realize that there was, there was no consistency with what they were saying. He says, now I'm trying to put it together. And I have three different people who wrote the Torah. He says, I need you to tell me who wrote the Torah. So I said, you know what? I'll make it easy for you. I said, I want you to tell me who wrote the Torah. I said, I'm going to make believe we're in synagogue now. And I'm going to lift up the Torah. And we sing Vizot HaTorah, right? What? I said, I want you to sing the words to me or write it down. Vizot HaTorah, Asher, Samoshe, Lifnei, Alpi, Moshe. Oh, oh, oh. The word of Hashem through the hand of Moses. I said, so who wrote the Torah? The word of Hashem through the hand of Moses. So I'm not, I don't even need to be the genius to tell you this, right? You're going to... Right. Well, of course God came first. Of course God came first. Right. Right, but Moses was the one who actually put the the pen to the to the paper. Right? God told him, "You write, I will trans you transcribe what I tell you." Right? So we have a clean sheet of paper, right? And God says, "Bereshit." Okay. Bara. Elohim, and so on and so forth, and it goes all the way through till the end of the Torah, five books of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, until the end. It's interesting. You know, there are some things that are written in the Torah that you, you know, don't make any sense that Moses would ever know about it, right? You know about, you know about Bilam? Bilam, the, the, the powerful, very, very powerful uh, prophet of the Gentiles. Very, very powerful prophet. They say he was more pro- more powerful than Midrash says. He was more powerful than Moses. 
Okay? You know why he was more powerful than Moses? So the nations of the world shouldn't say, well, you know why the Jewish people were so successful? It's because they had a great leader. If you would have given us a powerful prophet like Moses, we would also, uh, we would also be great. So God says, you know what? I'll give you an even greater prophet, Bilam. And yeah. That's with the donkey, the one who had the conversation with the donkey, right? So, so it's unbelievable, right? So he, he has this. Now, l- what, what, what's going on with Bilam? Balak, the king, goes over to him and says, I want you to curse these Jewish people. They go on top of a mountain. They overlook the camp of the Jewish people, right? Where's Moses? Moses is down by the camp. You think he knows about it? He doesn't know anything about it. He's sitting there writing the Torah, and the whole story of Balak and Bilam is all transpiring. He's like, what happened? He's, he, had nothing, he, had, he didn't know anything about it. How can Moses know about it? That's one number one. Number two is there are many, many laws. For example, what is a kosher animal, what is not a kosher animal? And all of the exceptions. For example, there's only one exception. You know, there, 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 are, there are two qualifications for an animal to be kosher. It needs to have split hoofs, and it needs to chew its cud. Okay, there's only one exception of an animal that has split hooves but doesn't chew its cud. That's, that's a pig. Now, Moses is no zoologist. Okay? He doesn't know every animal in the world. How can he put definitively in the Torah? And now, 3,300 years later, there still has not been a single, a single animal that has been found that is added to that exception. Not a single animal. Right? So you have an entire Torah you have 3,300 years later, there's not a single exception that's not written in the Torah. There must be a, a God-given document. right? Because Moses, there's no way in the world that he could know this. None. Moses didn't know all the fish. right? And he's telling you that it must have fins and scales. And if it has fins, it has scales. What? How does he know that? He saw every type of fish. You know how many, anybody here know how many types of different Water species there are, right? Billions, billions of different types of species. And Moses is telling you definitively in the Torah. No, it's not Moses. God is telling you in the Torah through the hand of Moses. There are things that Moses can't write about because he doesn't know unless God tells him. You know, there were four times the Midrash says that all of the animals of the world came to one place. We know if you want to see kangaroos, you either go to the zoo, you go to Australia, right? right? There are certain animals. You want to see the, the great elephants, you have to go to, 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 to Egypt, right? You, or you go to the zoo where they imported one from Egypt, right? right? Or to, 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 to uh, you go to, uh, sorry, to, uh, to Africa, right? Um, right. right. You, you go, you go, there are certain places you can see certain animals unless you bring them to a zoo in a cage and then you let them out and you sort of give them the, their, their environment a similar environment. Okay, so you have all of these animals. They all come to one place four times in the history of mankind. They all descend on one location. The first time was by Adam. Adam had to give them names. To give every animal a name. And we, d- we mentioned this in the beginning when we started. That... The, the names of each of the animals were given by their identity. All right? So if you have a, a dog, a dog is, is all heart. So the name you give to a dog that 
Adam gave to the dog is kelev, which is kol lev, all heart. It's all heart, right? You have a cat, which is chatul, because it's modest, right? It doesn't do its it doesn't do its needs in public. It goes to the side. It finds a little corner. It digs a little hole. It does its thing privately. Each animal is given a name that identifies its essence. Right? We can talk about a parpar. We can talk which is a butterfly. We can talk about all of these beautiful animals. Now. Adam had to understand each animal. So they all came there and they're waiting online. Give me a name. Where's my name? Where's my name tag? I need my name tag, right? Because it's the beginning of beginning of all creation. Everyone needs to get an identity. And Adam is spending time with each animal trying to learn the identity of each animal. Oh, I got it. Gives it a name that fits it appropriately. Okay? That is the first time. The second time is Noah and the flood. Right? He has to save all the animals. So what does he do? What does Noah do? He brings them. They all come to one location and they all join his, they go into the, into the ark. The fourth time, the, f- the third time, sorry, is when the Jewish people are, so when the, when the is a, a third, it's an opinion that there's a th- this third time was when the Egyptians were getting punished, where they had all of the animals come and destroy, tear apart their land, right? So that was the third time. And the fourth time, according to some opinions, this is the third time, was when Moses was teaching the Jewish people about kosher food. When they were sitting in the desert learning about kosher, right, all of the animals came. He says, this is kosher, this is not kosher. This is kosher, this is not kosher. Went through each animal to show them what exactly it means to have a split hoof. What does it mean to chew its cud? And so on and so forth. Right? You have, for example, a gamal, right, a camel, a camel chews its cud, but it doesn't have split hooves. That's one of the exceptions the other way. Right? You have exceptions of those that have split hooves but not chew their cud. You have exceptions of those that chew their cud but don't have split hooves. But other than those exceptions, there are no other animals that chew their cud or have split hooves. Unless they're kosher or they're totally not. All right? It's an incredible. So where does this come from, this wisdom? Where does this knowledge come from? This is all in the Torah, given by God to Moses. In the hand of Moses, we all sang it. Okay, so now, let me ask you a question. What does it actually tell us in the Torah? What does it actually tell us in Torah? It only tells us one idea in the Torah. It tells us what to do. But something that it does not tell us in the Torah is how to do. It has says, for example, it says to reach Shema in the morning and the evening. Well, it doesn't say when is considered morning. It doesn't say when is considered evening. It says that to slaughter an animal, great, before you eat it, you're not allowed, e- eat, allowed to eat from a living animal. You can't just chop a leg off a living animal and throw it on the grill. You can't do that. Even, by the way, even non-Jews are not allowed to do that. It's one of the seven, seven Noahide laws. You can't, you can't take an, a, a limb off a living animal and just eat it or grill it. Right? It has to die. It has to be put to death. And then you can eat from it. The reason I'm saying that it's a seven Noahide laws, last week um, we did not have class here, but um, I had a, a, an event. The, the building was closed, but uh, I had an event at the Torch Center of a group of Noahide uh, uh people who are not, not Jewish, mostly former Christians, who don't want to necessarily become Jewish, 
but they want to be they want to be accepted as the you know as Noahides. They want to observe and commit to the seven laws of Noah. And they they are not to eat from a living animal, not to curse God, not uh, not to say God's name in vain, uh, to believe in in one God and in no deities, um, uh, to have courts, uh, adultery, uh, not 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 to to uh, not to murder. What's that? Courts, yeah, courts, and judges, yeah, and and, and police force and everything. And what was the last one? Um, no, no. Th- no six and the seventh one is no idols. no idols. I think we said no deities, right? And no, that's not part of it. That's not part of it. But okay, so so we had this event at the Torah Center where we had fifteen Noahides that have in order for it to actually apply, they have to accept it in front of like a betin, and we created that betin of three. Uh, three men uh, who they all stood in front and they declared they had they also have to denounce any other any other God that that's part of it it's it's significant because um, it, it really is a, a, a remarkable uh, event where you see people who grew up one way and they've come to realize that you know there are too many contradictions in whatever religion they grew up with and uh, it was very it was very beautiful to see people who were just like and it, that's the beauty of Judaism, by the way, is that you don't need to be Jewish to be saved. You don't need to be Jewish to get heaven. You don't need to be Jewish, right? You can stay exactly who you are. There are seven commandments. That's it. And they're, I think, relatively easy. If you want to compare 613 to seven, I think we can, I think six, uh, you know, seven, seven will win any day of the week, right? But... Um, what are the purpose of this mitzvah? Uh, so, so let's go back. Slaughtering an animal. It says to slaughter an animal before you eat it. But does it say how to? No. Right? If you look at any single mitzvah, it says to put a mezuzah on your door. Right? Does it say what a mezuzah is? No. Just minor detail. It just doesn't say it. Right? It says, um, it says to put on tefillin. It doesn't tell us what tefillin are. It says to put fringes on your four-cornered garments. It doesn't say what fringes are, what they should be made of. It says it should be blue. Should it all be blue? Should it not be like... All of the details are missing. If you look at the Torah and you try to observe any single mitzvah, you're blind. Because it doesn't tell you how to do it. So how do we know how to do it? How do we know? The only way is to unfold it with the oral Torah. That's what the Talmud is. You know, the first Mishnah that's starting today of the first page of Talmud. So it goes, it was written Mishnah by, by, uh, by Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbi Yehuda the Prince. He wrote all of the Mishnah in six different categories. And then the Talmud was written by Ravina and Ravashi. It was compiled, which is, I guess, explanation and, and, and uh, a, um, an inquiry into the Mishnah. So there are both in the Talmud, if you look at any page of Talmud, you'll see there's always a Mishnah, and then there's the Talmud explaining that Mishnah. And it can go up to 16, even 20 pages on a single word in the Mishnah. The whole Torah. Oh, the Talmud. Yes. 
Well, because there's a lot of, we, we, we're, we're filled with a lot of information. No, you can do it yourself. You can do By the way, they have now they have they have a a great a great um resource on your phone if you have WhatsApp. You, there's a you can I can email text me and I'll send you this link. But there's the 8-minute daf. Daf means a page of Talmud. It's the 8-minute daf. And this guy, I mean it is 8 minutes is ridiculous, okay? It's a little fast for, you know, right? But um it's a challenge, but if you want to just get like a snippet of what each page of Talmud has, right? It's the eight minute daf. You subscribe, you add it as a contact in your in your in your phone, and then you'll get a daily eight minute uh, video of the exactly. It's the cliff notes. Now, yeah, it, it doesn't do it doesn't do it doesn't do justice to the Talmud because again, the Talmud is so deep. Now, y it's very you know it's am amazing. So the first Mishnah starts off like this: From when do we begin saying Shema in the evening? That's the first Mishnah, from when? So it's like me going, Ronnie, um, when are we going skiing? You're like, what? I, I didn't know we are going skiing. Uh, like, it's like, uh, did we talk about this? Did we, like, you know, it's like, uh, what? Right? H how, does this, how does this happen? It's like the Mishnah starts off with an assumption right there. Yeah. W from when do we begin? It's, not, it's, not, it's like, what time are we leaving to the airport for our skiing trip? It's like, what? It's like, it, it, it's right, right? From when do we begin saying Shema in the evening? So, so the, what's that? Okay, so one second. So the, so the actual time is from the time that the Kohanim go to eat their food. Well, what time is that? Okay, so now the Talmud, if you see the way the Talmud answers it, is the Talmud is a bunch of lawyers. Think of it as a bunch of lawyers. They're like, that's the first question that the Talmud asks. It's like, what? Who even said you say Shema? Right? Well, you got to bring a source. And everything in the Torah, every single line in the Torah needs to be verified. Okay? There's no line in the, in the Talmud that could be written without a source in the Torah. Anybody who tells you, it's just a bunch of rabbis having discussions and making up laws, has never learned Talmud. Right? Because and we have a Talmud class every Friday at the Torch Center at 12 o'clock. And this is exactly the point that we point out every single week that there's no such thing as the rabbis making up rules. It needs to be sourced, it needs to be verified in the Torah, in a specific verse or word in the Torah. So the Talmud right away attacks the Mishnah and says, what? From when? Who even said you say Shema in the evening? Right Now the Shema, as, any, as we all know, is the mission statement to the Jewish people. And the Torah tells us, there's a verse in the Torah, right, that you should say it every morning, and evening. Bishach Becha, when you lay down, Uvkumecha, and when you rise up. It's a mitzvah in the Torah to say Shema twice a day. Every evening when you go to sleep, and every morning. Now, what is sleep time? If I go to sleep, if I work night shift, right? So my sleep time is uh, at 10 in the morning. So is that my sleep time? The Gemara defines it. Again, the Gemara goes and thinks for us and does all that work to investigate and give us the bottom line answer at the end of the day. So we have all this argument going back and forth. One opinion says this, he brings a verse from here. This another opinion brings says that, he brings a verse from here. And then it gets to a conclusion. And then the Mishnah moves on. The Talmud moves on. Talks about the next part. Now, Rambam, who lived from 1135 to 1204, 
Rambam did an amazing work. Rambam went through the entire Torah, the entire Talmud, took all of the conclusions of the Talmud, and then he assembled all of the laws, all of the bottom line laws. Tell me what to do. Right? I have this many times. Like, Rabbi, I don't need the background. I don't care about all the theory and all the... Just tell me what to do. When should I say it? When should I get up? What, what, should, I, what should I do? Right? And Rambam does that. Rambam organizes it. So if you want to know exactly what it, what it takes to be a Jew and all of the laws, Rambam gives it very, very succinctly, very clearly. It's a pleasure to read the Rambam. Pleasure. And the Rambam organizes the conclusions of all of those arguments in the Talmud. And if you look on any page of Talmud, on the top corners of the pages, there's the sources of where Maimonides, Rambam, r where he puts the laws based on that specific page. And then if you look at the Rambam, he'll tell you what source it is in the Talmud. So it's they're, 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 they're cross-referenced. So this is amazing that you have the Rambam giving us conclusions. He tells us, okay, now what do we do? Now, it got even more... I, more interesting that the Rambam writes about his own book. He writes that a Jew really only needs his book because in, hi, in his book, right, in his book, he has all of Torah, he has all of Mishnah, all of Talmud. He has it all in there. So he says, if you learn my books well, you know everything you need to know as a Jew. The irony is that there are more books of commentary trying to figure out what Rambam meant Right than any other book in the entire world. There's no book that has more commentary written on it, trying to understand what is written than the Rambam. Right? That's that's an incredible irony. But um, but you have this incredible book now. Uh, Two hundred, three hundred years later, we have what's known as the Shulchan Aruch. The Shulchan Aruch is the is the laws of day to day that apply today. Meaning, today we don't have a temple, we don't have s offerings. We don't have sacrifices. We don't have uh, the tithes that we used to bring to the temple. We don't have all of these laws don't apply today. So what the Shulchan Aruch is is bringing it down to today. Okay, today what do we do? We wake up in the morning. Where do we start? What do we do? That's the Shulchan Aruch. And for those of you who want a very, very practical guide, there is a book called Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, which is, like you said, the cliff notes of the Shulchan Aruch, right? which is also an art scroll series. I think it's five volumes. And it goes through law by law from morning till evening. It will tell you every single thing, exactly how we, how we wash our hands, if, how do we put on tefillin, how do we light Shabbos candles, how do we observe Shabbat, every single law, exactly. It's called the Kitsur Shulchan Aruch. And Art Scroll did a magnificent job translating that as well to give us the, the full scope of understanding of this, this book. K-I-T-Z-U-R Shulchan Aruch S-H-U-L-C-H-A-N Aruch A-R-U-C-H Okay, so this is a little bit of background, a little bit of history so we can understand what the Talmud is. The Talmud is the really the, the, the elaboration elaboration of all of the Torah's teachings so that we can understand it and it not be a mystery to us when there are verses. And it, th th to me, I'll tell you what, one of the things that turned me on in Judaism is that, you know, 
you grow up, you, there's verses that are written in the Torah, and you think, okay, that's okay, it's a nice message. When you learn it through the eyes of the Talmud, it suddenly it's like it's like this huge uh, this huge uh, you know orchard that was created out of this single word, sometimes even a single letter, a letter of the Torah, one letter. Why did that letter? And, and many times the Talmud would ask, why is that letter needed? Why is that letter needed? It's one letter. What's the big deal? Just let it go. No. If it's God's document, he doesn't put anything there. Just Let's just throw it in extra. right? No, no, no. There's a reason why it's there. I'll give you an example. We know there's a, there's a commandment in the, in the Ten Commandments to honor your father and mother. Okay? You're the oldest brother, right? Yeah. I think you're going to like this one. <laughs> All right? So it says, honor your father and mother. So it says, Kabet et avicha, et imecha. You should honor your father and your mother. Now, in Hebrew, it's very different, but imagine, why does it need to say and? It could just say, honor your father and mother. No, uh, sorry. Honor, honor your father. Okay, it doesn't work in English, but in, in Hebrew, it says, it could, it could say, Kabet et avicha, imecha. Why ve'et? It's a whole other word. Why do we need to add that whole extra word? In the Torah, that's significant. Our sages tell us, this is again, the Talmud figuring it out, going through the whole process. It says, Ve, the extra vav that's added to that is to add the oldest brother. You have to have a special respect. The younger siblings have to have a respect for the oldest brother. Right? Or sister, obviously. Right? But do you understand that? Why? We can get into the Talmud when we get there. Right? But, but I it's an amazing, just from one letter, we learn it's a whole other thing. Right? Now, next time your brother's mess with you, you can say, ah, ve'et. Right? Ve'et imecha. Right? Okay. So let's get started with our, with our topic. Okay, the topic today is going to be happiness. Now, there is nothing in the world that is more sought after than these eight words known as happiness. Not you know what? The entire world, there's not a human being in the world who doesn't seek pleasure. Even those who are sadists and masochists and, 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 and people who do terrible things, they do it because that gives them pleasure. So after all, everyone is seeking pleasure. What is the greatest form of pleasure? Happiness. Oh, but I disagree with the Declaration of Independence, wi with that point of it. Because pursuit of happiness isn't happiness. That means you're running after it. It's someplace beyond you. No, it's not beyond you. You have the ability within you, right? So we'll talk about it. I'm, I'm going to get it's in my notes. Don't worry, we, we got it covered. All right. So if you want to, if you would look in the Torah. What part of this is? Okay, perfect. Okay. So if you see happiness, one of those inalienable rights from God. But you have, it doesn't come without your participation. So. I have over here the, the U.S. Declaration of Independence. I, I would do it differently. 
How about life, liber liberty, and happiness? We we can't guarantee you life. We can't guarantee you liberty. We could get what? Oh 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 oh! Very good. Very. Per, per, here's a boat, son. Here's, here's uh, a travel, son. Are you happy? No, Dad, I'm not happy. Right. I want to be a painter in poverty. Right. Go pursue that which you think will make you happy. I can't give it to you. Well, no government can well, give it. Well, life and liberty, they can't either give you. No, but they can prevent other people from taking it away from you. Okay, so... That's I, what the laws are. So the laws of the land are to make sure that nobody else... Okay, so let's let's so let, we'll get there. We'll get there in due course. We'll get there in due course. We'll get there in due course. I appreciate it. We'll talk after. Okay. Happiness is a state of mind. Okay, happiness is a state of mind, and happiness is a means to an end. Meaning, okay, um, it's internal. It's not external. You can buy anything in the world. It won't make you happy. Right? It won't make you happy. Right? You can wear anything in the world. It won't make you happy. Right? You can have the watch. You can have the clothes. You can have the jewelry. You can have the, the, the house. You can have the vacation home. You can have the cruises. You can have everything in the world. It doesn't guarantee you happiness. All right? Happiness is within. It's not, it's not from coming from outside of you. Happiness is a tool for life. It's a tool for life. So let's understand. So what does happiness come from? We spoke re previously, and this is why we go from appreciation and gratitude to happiness. Because the first key to happiness is appreciation. If a person does not appreciate what they have, they will not be happy. It is impossible for someone to take life for granted and be happy. If you don't stop and enjoy your coffee, you're depriving yourself from an opportunity to be happy. Yeah, I like my coffee. Yeah, but did you stop to enjoy it? Did you stop to smell the coffee? Ah, thank you. Thank you for giving me this coffee. You know what? There are many people in this world who would love to have a coffee, but don't. And I do. Thank you. Right? Do you have a roof above your head? You have a comfortable bed to sleep in with a pillow and a blanket? Guess what? Not everyone has that privilege. So the first step to happiness is, is starting to, to be thankful, to be, a, to be appreciative of what we have, appreciating the bounty you do have over the deficiencies we are lacking. Everybody here has things that they can be thankful for, that we can be thankful for. And we also don't have things that we wish we had. Right? We look at someone else and we're like, oh, if only I had children like that. If only I had parents like that. If only I had a spouse like that. If only I had friends like that. If only I had a car like that. If only I had a... It's like, we're busy looking at what other people have. Stop. Right? If we just cared about what we had and appreciated what we have, we'd be the happiest people on earth. The happiest people on earth. Number two for happiness is controlling our desires. And we'll, we're going to explain each of these. 
Okay, controlling our desires. Now, a person who doesn't control their desires never is never happy because they're never pleased with what they have. So they're constantly running after the next thing, after the next thing. They don't they don't stop. By the way, it's a very it's a very interesting interesting thing. You know, the Talmud says the, the Mishnah says a very interesting thing. Mishnah says, Yeshlomana wrote some Masayim. Someone who has a hundred wants two hundred. They have two hundred, they want four hundred. It's ne- the, the, the thirst for money, the thirst for objects never stops. You say, you know what? When I get my 30-inch screen TV, I'll be happy. Remember when people once said that? Yeah. And then it went, well, well, you know what? When I have a 40-inch screen, then I'll be happy. When I have a 50-inch screen, I'll be happy. When I have a 60-inch screen, I'll be happy. When I have, it, doesn't, it doesn't stop, right? And it w- oh, when I get HD, then I'll be happy, right? When I get fast internet, then I'll, and then we see that we get it and we're not happy. So, look, meaning running after our temptations and desires constantly is never going to please us. It's like this energizer bunny constantly running, telling us we want more, we want more, we want more, we want more, and we're never going to be satiated from it. Okay. The third key to happiness is not looking at what others have. The minute we stop looking at what other people have, we're beginning to be happy. Just don't look. Now, I've told you about this, uh, this friend of mine uh, when I was back in, in, in another state. Um, it was about 20, about 20, 22 years ago. Um, they had this big picture window in front of the, at the front of the house. You know what a picture window is? It's that you can just look outside. It's like a big picture of you see of what's going on outside. I said, but why would you have that? They're like, what do you mean? We can see our neighbors and we can see our friends and we can see people walking and we can see people talking. And I realized that many people sit in front of those windows and look at, what, they, they got a new car? Is that, is that, uh, what, one second, is that, is that new shoes? Right? That she, is she walking around with new shoes again, new boots, new this, new that? And instead of it being just something to like, it's a great idea, I think a terrible concept, right? Terrible concept that we should be looking at what other people have. You know, my parents, we grew up in a very modest home. And whether my father had a lot of money or a little money, you didn't know. Because life didn't change. I remember one of our neighbors came and they said, you know, I think it's time to paint the outside of the house a little. My father says, we love our house. If you don't like the way it looks, you're welcome to paint it. (laughs) (laughs) But what we see in our house, we love. I remember, to me, I was was young. I was probably 10 or 12 years old. It was, I I don't care what the neighbor has. My, My father said, you know, when we look at your house, we see a beautiful house. I don't know what your problem is. Like, you know, it's like, we see a beautiful house. If you don't like the house you see, and you can change it. You know, it's like you can change your view. But um, the, the, it wasn't kicking them out of the neighborhood at all. But uh, we love our neighbors, by the way. We're very, very close with them. But, um, but the idea is that sometimes people look at what other people have. And it doesn't, it doesn't give us satisfaction. There's no good that comes out of it, by the way. There's only jealousy. It's only a feeling of like, you know what? Maybe I have to get a better job so I can earn more money, so I can have what, what they have. 
so I can be part of the club that they're part of, so I can be part of the society that they go to and be you know, part of. Looking at what other people have doesn't bring us happiness, ever. Okay? Now, there's one exception to that. There's one exception. That every type of jealousy is bad, except for the jealousy of spirituality. If you're jealous of someone else's good deeds, of someone else's learning, that's a good thing. You know that there's no antitrust laws with Torah institutions. You know that? I can, I can open up a synagogue right next door, and you can take me to any court in the, in the world, and they'll say, so, let the best man win. Right. right? Now people have another place to pray in. I can open up a school, a Torah school, a yeshiva, right next door to your yeshiva. Right next door. You know why? Because if there's more opportunities to learn, who benefits? The Jewish people benefit. So I'm going to make a better school. You're going to make an even better school. And they will make an even better school. And they will make an even better school. Who's benefiting? The students. It's a great thing. That there'll be more, more study. That's an excellent thing. So there's never a, a, a th- that's, there's never antitrust laws when it comes to Torah. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be a mensch. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, it, yes. Oh, 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 there's copyright laws. There are copyright laws. And if someone has the rights of printing something, right, you can't just say, well, I'm just going to print another copy of it and I'll eat away at his. You know, the Chafetz Chaim, you want to hear what a great man is? Right, the Chafetz Chaim. But well, certain things, certain things don't, don't uh, even even books. You can't just take a Tom Clancy book and start making copies no, and printing it. Okay, so let me tell you, the Chafetz Chaim wrote his his great work. Chafetz Chaim passed away in 1934. He wrote 22 books in his life, and one of the books is the most most popular, which is called the Mishnah Brewer. It's also a book of of Jewish law, practical application for every day. And the Chafetz Chaim wrote in his there's no copyright on the book, but it is one condition. Sorry, two conditions. Two conditions. Number one is that you're not allowed to change the design of the of the page. It means you have to keep it the same format. And the second is you have to give a quarter of your printings out for free. Anybody who wants, you can go today. And take the book of, of Chavetz Chaim, make copies, and sell it. No problem. But 25% of the copies that you print need to be given out for free. That's his condition. Anybody wants. Anybody here, you can just open up a printing press and start printing Mishnah Brewers. Right? No problem. It's free. But you have to, that's, that's his precondition. You know why? He says the more Mishnah Brewers we have, the better off it is for the Jewish people. He wasn't selfish about it. Then he used to go when he was alive. He would go from city to city selling his books. Right? That's how he supported himself at his l- later later years. Right? He'd go sell his books. But he had no problem if anybody else printed them and sold them also. Right? That, that's a great man. It's like, I'm not going to keep it for myself. 
This is to help inspire the Jewish people. Okay, so that's, that's, that's something else. But the idea of not looking at what others have. So we have to understand something. Our bodies are temporary. Our souls are eternal. So my son is very, very sweet this morning. Um, as I was getting dressed, so, you know, every morning, every evening, I weigh myself uh, in this diet that I'm in and doing my exercise. And I ran last night my 4.1 miles, um, you know, trying to keep, t- keep up to my, my, uh, to my training. And um, my son says to me, he says, you know, Abba, if you're the only Jew running the marathon, you could win. I said, why? He says, because you could daven, you can pray, and Hashem will listen to you. But if everybody else is, it's very, <laughs> I said, but guess, wh- guess where I'm running the marathon? In Jerusalem. <laughs> Who do you, you think, right? You think I'm the only Jew running, right? But the, the idea is, 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 so, you know, our souls are eternal. Our soul comes into this body. It lives this life, 120 years. And then the soul lives on. The body gets put in the earth, and we're over. Right, and I, c- I was explaining. I was explaining to the same son yesterday. I said, that "You have to understand that your body is not going to live here forever. The body's not going to be here forever. The soul will. Right? The soul lives on forever. Why is this important? Right? Why is this important? It's important because if we want to understand happiness, we have to under- We have to look bigger than just today." We have to look at a big picture, zoom out, and stop looking at the micro. Start looking at the macro. Start looking at the big picture of life. There are many people in the entire world who can look at a camera looking into this room and be jealous that they don't have the opportunity to study Torah. That they don't have an opportunity to sit in a room with lights, with air conditioning, who can be in a secure facility, who can live in the United States, who can be sipping on Starbucks coffee. They, they don't have those opportunities, and we do. But the problem is we're looking in a micro into where our little problems that we have, and we're not looking into a, at a macro. We're not looking. On, you know, if you were to ask someone, so what are you? Well, so I'm me. I'm me. This is, this is me. Most people point to themselves, right? You're a soul. That's, that's the right answer. The right answer is I'm a soul because your body is temporary. If you, if you look at most issues, challenges that people face, most challenges that people face is because they're too absorbed in the body, not in the soul. The minute we're able to live in a, in a higher existence, in a higher realm of, of existence, of I'm not just a, a, a temporary body, but I'm an eternal soul. You know, I sat with my grandmother, a blessed memory. She passed away a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago. So I asked my grandmother, I had, you know, one of my trips to Israel. I had the two hours to just sit with my grandmother and schmooze. You know, so I said, tell me, what was the atmosphere in your house? What was that atmosphere in your house? She grew up in a house, and those of you who saw my Facebook post, her youngest brother, who was the only male survivor from her family, passed away last week. And her, you know, so it's it's very sad. You know, it's like the end of an era. It's like that whole generation of survivors are all gone. So I asked her, "What was the what was the environment like in her house?" And she says there was no pettiness. 
there was no there was no arguments about small things. You know, sometimes they hear you hear children fighting about it's my brush, it's your brush, it's my this, it's my that. It's like they were so above that, right? Because they realized, you know, there was a whole school of thought where she grew up in. Her father was teaching this in his yeshiva of how great a man is. Mankind, we are so great. We're capable of such incredible things. And sometimes we make ourselves so small. We, make, we, we, we become so petty. We become so, right? We don't think big. We can be so great. We can do such incredible things. But we sometimes sell ourselves cheap. And we become like, you know, it's like we become petty. That's because we're too focused on our bodies that are temporary instead of our souls that are eternal, right? Happiness cannot be confused with laughter or comedy, okay? Oh, you want to be happy? Late night shows are not your solution, okay? That's not, and reading Reader's Digest is not either going to make you happy, right? It can make you laugh. It can make you uh, uh, overcome some of your challenges, right? There's a place for, 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 for comedy. There's a, there's a place for laughter. But don't confuse laughter and comedy with happiness. Yes? Right. So, so e every, every person in the world can have a happiness minute every day of his life. If we just stopped and appreciated what we had. Not, right? Because the minute you start looking at what you don't have, you look at what the other person has, you look at, we'll be done in a minute. Right? W the minute we start looking outside, not inside, is that's when we're unhappy. That's where we're limited. All right. So we, sorry, we took some time to explain the Siyam Shas, the completion of the Talmud. And uh, we just started now the with happiness. Next week we'll continue. We'll dive right in at 11 o'clock next week. Okay? If you come here at 10 o'clock, I won't be able to help you. Right? <laughs> but if you come here at 11 o'clock, I'll be very happy to see all y'all. Yes. I heard about that. Yes. Yeah. If you did not sign in, please sign in. And if you did not put your email on this sheet previously, please do so so we can contact you. All right? <laughs>